0: As a founder, many of us start our companies solo, then bring on people to help. And that's where it can get tricky. We're idea people, right? Not managers. No one taught us how to do this. And how do you manage people? Could you do it better? Is there a difference between managing 10 employees or 600? Gary Smith is CEO of PolarTech, one of the world's largest technical fabric manufacturers. They supply to the North Face, Timberland, Eddie Bauer, and virtually every other outdoor clothing brand. He's also owner of Independent Fabrication, a boutique custom bicycle brand. Between the two, he's managing completely different workforce types and sizes. In this episode, he tells us how he does it and provides lessons on leadership we can all put into practice immediately. Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRuler.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Gary, you have been the head of some of the largest outdoor apparel brands, currently CEO and, I believe, chief marketing person for Polartech. Prior to that, you spent eight years at Timberland, and prior to that, uh, McKinsey & Co., a large consulting company. Uh, before we kind of dive into the, the nuts and bolts of your management style between these big companies and your other uh, almost sounds like kind of a pet project in scale, uh, independent fabrication, a customer bicycle brand. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Um, well, I started my career uh, working for United Technologies Corporation, uh, manufacturing things like jet engines and elevators and car parts, uh, big, you know, many-billion-dollar conglomerate. And, um, and then, you know, went to grad school and joined McKinsey & Company uh, as a consultant coming out of grad school because my wife was applying to Ph.D. programs. Um, got to travel the world and thought it would be a relatively short term gig and ended up um, really enjoying it and building a practice and becoming a partner. and then joined Timberland, uh, ran operations and product, and then had commercial responsibility for the outdoor business and the work boot business. and um, and then uh, kind of along the way got uh, got involved in a reality TV show um, with CNN. Um, and that's when I met the guys in Independent Fabrication and um, we, the reality TV show was a show called The Turnaround that used to be on CNN on Saturday mornings, and the premise was big companies help small companies, and IF, Independent Fabrication, had been struggling, and they applied to be on that show, and they came to Timberland and asked if we would be the big company mentor, and so, you know, I brought my team down, and we filmed the episode. It was a pretty interesting experience all in, and got to know the crew, and they built a bike for me, and a few years later, they were going to go out of business if someone didn't uh, take a leap of faith and and um, write a check, and that's what I did. So, um, you know, yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to call it a a passion project. It's you know it's a very interesting, it's a great brand, it's a great product. It's got a long you know now 22 year history, and um, you know very loyal uh, fan and dealer base around the world.
0: Yeah, so let's kind of dive right into the independent fabrication of things. I remember from a conversation you I had a while back is that there were maybe a couple of different people looking at putting money into IF and it sort of just kind of fell apart or the people backed out and you were like, well, I'm just going to do it on my own. Is that accurate recollection?
1: uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, practically speaking, you know, by the end of 2007, uh, they had no options. They, You know, they, they being, you know, IF had been formed, you know, by six people who were refugees from uh, the demise of Fat City Cycles, you know, back in 1995. And, you know, by the time I met them, only one of those six original founders was still there. And it was an employee-owned co-op, which was, you know, interesting in concept, but practically it didn't really work. And, you know they had never been properly capitalized, and you know there was lots of lots of infighting, um, as you can imagine, when you have a, everybody's a chief and nobody's an Indian, and everybody's an Indian, nobody's a chief, depending on what's convenient. That was one of the things that was obvious to us when you know when I, I took my Timberland team down and we did the did the show back in it was either '04 or '05, I can't remember. And um, so by the time you know we got to the end of 2007, you know they had pretty much exhausted all. All opportunities for financing. And like I said, they dug themselves into a pretty big hole and somebody was ultimately going to just put a chain on the door. And um, the, only, the only practical solution would be, you know, what, what the industry typically call an angel investor, somebody like myself that, you know, kind of viewed it as a passion project, wasn't overly rational or analytical about it, and, you know, was willing to give it a, another chance. And that's effectively what happened. I mean, it was never intended to be you know, a full time gig for me, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd hope that uh, I could, you know, play a very minor role in it, you know, just kind of make sure that, that my money wasn't being wasted. Um, but, you know, within within weeks of writing a fairly large check, uh, you know, the the gentleman that ran the front end of the business and, and the fellow that ran the back end of the business got in a fist fight in front of me. So <laughs> it was, you know, typical small business stuff. And as you know, as a big business person, you know, you just don't, you don't expect that type of thing um, or you're not used to it anyway. So it was, it's been an interesting, interesting experience, but um, you know, my, my wife and I have owned it now for over 10 years and um, it's, you know, it's in a, it's in a really good place. You know, it's one of those, it's one of those brands and businesses that if you try to blow it up, I think you ruin it. You know, it's uh, you know, it's hard to trade cash for cash.
0: So, yeah. Well, and so in those 10 plus years that you guys have owned it, has it, turned around and become a legitimately profitable business and and is it growing or are you intentionally capping it or is it kind of like self-capping
1: um it's a it's a little of both it's it's um you know it's a healthy business it's you know it's a difficult business because you know it's very subject it's a global business and that's one thing that i'm proud of you know when i when I first uh when I first bought it, one of the first things I did was really emphasize the international part of the business and, you know, thankfully so because that's really kind of carried the brand through some tough tough times in the US market. Um you know in the in the last you know ever since the financial crisis in 2008 you know for the better part of the last decade there's just never been a time when you know all four regions of the world are firing you know simultaneously you know western europe's had its difficult times north america certainly had its tough times and you know asia's a mixed bag so you know there's always two or three markets you know uh, sprinkled around you know right now um, you know singapore's doing really well for us japan's healthy korea's tough uh, the uk's always been a strong market you know the u s is really mixed, you know some decent signs of life on the west coast particularly in the in the tech region up in northern california but you know other than that you know the cycling industry in north America is in a in a difficult place right now so it it's you know it's 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 a good business it's what I would call a lifestyle business you know you can make a living, but if you're an investor and you're looking to make uh you know a disproportionate return, it's not not the place to be you know it's a it's you're you're making bikes one at a time you know, with, with, you know, skilled craftspeople and, you know, we're a big, small shop in the sense that, you know, um, we've got a core of people who've been there for, you know, for a very long period of time and they represent the kind of the rocks. And then, you know, it's not an easy thing. It's not fungible. You can't just hire people in and, and ramp up your capacity because it's not a homogenous product and the skill set takes time to learn and so on. So it's, um, it's just a very it's a very it's a fascinating business and i can tell you as as somebody who spent most of my career in big business you know being a small business owner is massively humbling you know because it's uh it's a lot harder you know you don't have you know the infrastructure and the staff and everybody around you you know you can start your day with a list of 10 things that you want to get done and if you get one or two done you're lucky because you know everything will just kind of hit you out of out of the left field and you know, you don't have that leverage that you have in a big organization.
0: So Yeah, you never know what kind of fires you're going to have to put out on any given day, especially when you have a few employees. Yeah, so it's, uh...
1: it's um, but it, it's in a good place, you know, I think you visited us shortly after we moved, and we've been, we've been in New Hampshire now for, you know, going on seven years, and, you know, it's a great place, it's really, really nice, nice place to live, it's a nice place to work, it's, uh, you know, we built the, you know, we renovated an old mill. and We built it out to our to our needs, and you know, it's uh,
0: yeah. It's a really cool area. It's beautiful. I, I yeah. would encourage anybody if they're ever up in middle of nowhere, in New Hampshire, to go check it out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's only an hour north of Boston. It's 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 the it's the settled part of New Hampshire.
0: Yeah, it's it's quaint for sure. So it's fun. this is more of just like a a side note commentary based on what mm-hmm. you said about intentionally growing that international business for IF because it's. I'm guessing almost predominantly, if not totally, a custom bike brand. You guys aren't really making like stock offerings, are you?
1: No, you know we've had fits and starts, and you know I continue to, um, you know, with my wife Tony, who runs the place on a day-to-day basis. You know, we aspire to have, you know, particularly in our our steel road product, steel crown jewel. You know, we we try to have a few stock geometry frames, you know, on the pegs, so that if someone called and they wanted to pick their their paint color and decals, we could turn it fairly quickly but we just can't ever seem to get ahead. You know, it's, you know, being a custom business and, you know, having a robust backlog. Every time we seem to get a few, quote, stock frames on the peg, you know, they get sold, and then we just don't have the capacity to replace them because we're busy with customer orders, you know, which is a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's the delicate balance. You know, as long as the order book is robust and there's a solid backlog there, there's really no incentive for us to add capacity. You know, we could, but I just, you know, Again, it's 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 in a good place and um, yeah, you know, trying to ramp it up. It's if it's working, not, it's not, don't break it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, you know it provides a it provides a good living for the crew and like I said, they live in a in a in a good area and it's you know everybody's kind of healthy and happy and that's really what matters in, in that business. Like I said, it's a lifestyle business. It's not a business that you're looking to make a killing off of. Um, you know,
0: so. Yeah. What struck me about your, your comment though about intentionally going the international business is that a lot of the custom frame builders I've talked to over the years, they they almost kind of luck into international sales. You know, like somebody Japan seems to be a, a big market for US made custom. You know, they'll they'll mm-hmm. completely luck into somebody finding them on the web and, and ordering a couple bikes and then all of a sudden they have this little tiny pocket of sales in these foreign countries with hugely loyal fans. But it sounds like you had a more deliberate approach to that. And I'm kind of curious, is that because you were coming from these global brands like Timberland and you sort of knew what to do, or did you do you feel like maybe you lucked into that as well?
1: You know, everything's a combination of, you know, opportunity finding you and then you taking advantage of it. So um, you know, in the case of, you know, a deliberate focus, I mean if you know, if certainly had an international clientele when I when I bought the company. Um, it was just more about where do you put your time and energy? And, you know, what's unique about if is relative to, you know, individual builders is, you know, if is a, you know, small shop, meaning you know, we've got a crew and we've got some dedicated functions, et cetera. And we sell predominantly through dealers, you know, we'll sell direct to folks if they want to come to our shop and, you know, we've got a fit studio there and so on. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's a little easier. Um, and one of the things that, you know, whether you're big business or small business, local knowledge matters. And certainly having boots on the ground in those markets that can represent you, that can, you know, service your product, handle customs, all the things that, you know, are are difficult if you're a one-man shop and you're shipping, you know, one frame or one complete bike to somebody, um, you know, on a one-on-one transaction basis. And so we've just been fortunate that we've found and, and nurtured good dealer relationships, you know, in key parts of the world that, um, that have had, you know, robust demand for its products, you know, and some of those relationships, you know, they come and they go, but, um, you know, for us, it's really, it's about having that, that dealer, you know, in a given market that can really service the market or in some cases, multiple dealers, depending on the geography.
0: So you guys rely relying on dealers in those foreign markets as opposed to, uh, contracted or full-time sales reps and people.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, and because, um, again, you know, all we're all we're typically shipping is a frame and the fork, you know, and then the, the dealers building it up locally. Um, you know, there's there's instances where we're shipping complete bikes. You know, we just we just shipped a fleet of, you know, 12 complete um, stainless steel, you know, SSR stainless steel road bikes to a tour operator in Mallorca, which is kind of cool. Um, but, um, you know, for the most part, you know, put a frame in a box and shipping it to a dealer who's working with their customer. Locally to you know, spec out the bike, build it up, make sure that everything's dialed in when the customer takes delivery of it.
0: Cool. So uh, let's dive into the management stuff because that's really what I wanted to talk to you about. So you went from running this global company Timberland to running a ten-person boutique bike brand. How did your experience <laughs> at that at this global corporation inform your management style at IF?
1: Well again, you know, for me personally that was accidental. You know, I didn't intend to get directly involved in the day to day uh management, if you will, of, of IF, but it just, you know, and I guess if I had if I had thought more deeply or done a little bit more due diligence on, you know, the state of affairs and the individuals, I should have known better. <laughs> um you know, I, I think, you know, any any company, whether it's a big company or it's a small company, you know, professional standards certainly matter and you know, treating people with you know, respect and, and, you know, having accountability, you know, so it's, uh, you know, in a small company, like I said, particularly the situation that I inherited it, if, you know, there was a lot of infighting and backbiting and, um, you know, it's not productive and it can become really cancerous after, if, you know, if if it goes too far. And so, you know, creating actual measurements, you know, and goals and, you know, just being you know, somewhat analytical and disciplined about it—not not sucking the life out of the thing and the spirit out of the thing, but just you know, keeping people anchored and aligned around. Look, you know, the objective is to serve the customer. They won't just give us cash for anything, and so let's um, let's put our energies towards serving the customer externally, as opposed to fighting internally or bickering about who's adding more value, you know, et cetera. And they, you know, that's that's a lot of the situation. Like I said, in this you know idealized. Employee-owned co-op. There was this notion that everybody's an equal, but practically speaking, that's not it's not the case. And so there was lots of discord over who was doing what, especially when you know the financial results weren't satisfactory and you know, you're having a tough time paying the bills.
0: Yeah, nobody wants to take blame for that. So did you have to instill uh, you know like job titles and specific tasks for people and, and make sure that they were kind of each person living up to what they were supposed to be doing?
1: yeah and you know un- unfortunately shortly you know within within the first 6 months you know one of those two gentlemen that uh that got into the uh the disagreement I had to let go um because his his behavior was you know particularly with regard to you know like I said just that that backbiting and you know i guess to use a technical term shit talking you know it just it just it had reached a crescendo where it actually was impacting the brand externally um you know i had received a call from from another you know custom bike builder that he had been saying things about and you know just it just got out of hand and so it was you know it was best to kind of have him move on and you know start a different chapter in his life and um you know things settled down you know after that in particular and you know we got into a pretty good groove and you know the next sort of you know big disruption was when you know a few years later when we actually moved the company north and
0: So is it still an employee owned company or did you change the structure?
1: No, no. I mean, you know, I, I, my wife and I own, um, uh, you know, I don't know what the actual percentage is. You know, we, we still have one, uh, individual who's, you know, been with us since then that has, uh, you know, a small amount of shareholdings, you know, in the company. And, uh, you know, he's our, he's our shop lead and, um, you know, but it's a, you know, it's a very small single digit number.
0: Yeah, if you were going to start or or for somebody who wanted to start a business, you know, an entrepreneur that's looking at doing like this something similar, you know, a passion-based kind of lifestyle business that may or may not ever grow into something bigger, would you advise against having an employee-owned structure or some version of it?
1: Well, the the employee-owned thing is is, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Because, you know, you're if you're an owner, you're not an employee, correct? you know if you think about it and so in the case of in the case of IF if i you know i don't know most of the original six founders like i said there was only one of them left by the time i i met them you know more than almost 15 years ago um you know when you're an owner right if you don't sell you don't eat that's just what it comes down to and you know if you're an employee you show up you do whatever it is that you're asked to do and you get paid and you go home and if the company fails you lose your job but it's not on you to, you know, you know, make a sacrifice against your wages in any given time period if the business doesn't justify you to get paid or you don't. And that's where I think there was a lot of confusion about what an employee-owned co-op means. And so in the case of IF, for example, like I said, by the time, you know, the end of the 2007 rolled around, these guys had dug themselves into a pretty massive hole, meaning, you know, Material suppliers, part suppliers, et cetera, were no longer willing to extend credit or terms, you know, because they hadn't paid the bills, but they'd always paid themselves first. And that's the opposite of what an owner does. You know, and if you talk to, you know, some of the well-known individual builders out there, they can tell you, you know, when times are lean, they suffer. Right. And that's part of being an owner. You know, like I say, if you don't sell, you don't eat. And, um, I, I think, you know i think there's a, a there's a big myth around this employee owned co-op thing it just you know in general i you know find an example where it's really worked right
0: um, so one of the and i'm i'm hesitant to pigeonhole any particular generation you know like saying gen x gen y whatever on this but i think sure. one of the I, I don't even know if prevailing like so I, i've i know people who own companies who employ a lot of people in aging and range from fresh out of college to mid-30s. And one of the struggles they face is these people really taking ownership of what they're doing and and really trying to work above and beyond maybe what their little niche is. So when you walked into IF, and maybe even with Polartech now, um, but when you have people who are used to operating one way, maybe it's their way and they think they're doing it right and you know, everybody else is doesn't know what they're talking about and they're so smart. How do you go in and manage a group of people like that and get them to turn around and see the bigger picture and, and operate more as a team?
1: Yeah, again, I think, you know, to me, you know, the way I define leadership is getting people to do things they otherwise wouldn't have done without your involvement. You know, that's it's really pretty simple and and in a perfect world you would do that in a way where once you stepped aside they wouldn't even realize you know that that's what had happened and so i think it's it's very important whether it's an individual or an enterprise whether it's a small enterprise or big enterprise if you're the leader of that enterprise your job is to is to create some sort of inspiring mission you know, for that, for that enterprise. And, you know, in the case of a custom bike builder, you you legitimately have to believe that you are building the best bike you can, or, you know, in some cases you could say, we make the best custom bikes in the world. Um, and you have to sort of be able to back that up by saying, what's different about what you do versus somebody else who could do that. And so in the case of IF, it's interesting, you know, um, it's a phenomenal brand. You know, I, I, you know, I travel the world, whether it's for polar tech and, and, you know, anytime, you know, I, somebody that's involved in the cycling space, like I said, you know, there's 20, 22 years of history now. The brand is just revered and, and has this, you know, incredible aura about it. And when you peel that back and you go even a little bit deeper on it, it's all about, um, you know, Richard Sachs one time early on, you know, he was actually pretty helpful to me. Um, you know, when I got involved in this and Richard said, you know, Gary, what you got, you, you know, IF is a dude brand. You know, it's got some attitude, it's got some swagger to it. And part of that is, you know, the the sort of, you know, the the origin story and, you know, there was a moment in time, you know, for, you know, that early group where, you know, they were making funky paint jobs. It's back when cycling was a little, you know, came out of the mountain bike world, like I said, the demise of Fat City when, you know, cycling was a little less serious than it is today and, you know, loud, and crazy paint jobs and, you know, it was all part of the brand's, you know, shtick and ethos and to this day, I think what's different about us, versus, you know, other opportunities, you know, that folks have to buy a custom bike is, you know, our aesthetics. We put a disproportionate amount of energy and effort into our the quality and, and creativity of our paint finish. And, um, you know, so, so there's a little bit of attitude there. It's kind of an American brand. You know, we, we... And so, you know, articulating that and, you know, both for the people that have been there for a long time and, and the new folks that come on board and get them to understand that, hey, this is what you're part of. And and then just making it, you know, a, a, a good place to make a living. Um, you know, it's a nice place to work. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's professional. It's, you know, it's in a good location. You know, there aren't any compromises, you know, in that sense.
0: Yeah. Um, How do you get people to buy into that vision, though? I mean, I, I you know, some people are just going to get it. And they're there because they love the brand yeah. or the product or the culture. But for other people, because especially as you grow in size, you know, like you're not going to find... Well, maybe you will, but I think it gets less and less likely that you're going to find, you know, a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand employees that all are just sure. super driven by that culture. So, what are some of your tactics and tools think, for getting that buy-in?
1: Well, I think part of it is it's you know, again, whether it's a big company or a small company, you know, you know, you know, enterprises, companies, right? They have an organization structure just like a military does, right? And there's a lot of analogies to the military, and if you study corporate. You know evolution in history there's all kinds of linkages and whatnot but you know in our case you know we've got a good core of people you know two individuals that come to mind you know sean estes who like i say he you know he manages the fab side of the shop sean's been with us you know he wasn't one of the original founders but you know he certainly predates me so he's been with if for i don't know 15 plus years and then chris rowe who runs the paint side of the business you know those two guys are the rocks you know, they, they understand, you know, the origin of the brand, they've seen, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, you know, Chris, in yeah. fact, left during some of the dark days and he came back and, um, you know, so having that core, um, you know, it's, it's no different than, you know, big enterprise like Timberland or Polar Tech, where, you know, it's not just me, right? I've got my, my team and, and you all have to be aligned at, at the top and you got to kind of push that down into the organization. It's, it's, you don't have to get everybody to buy into it and, you know, if I could just without, you know, going sideways here too much, you know, one of the things about, you know, a custom bike builder like IF, you know, whenever we have an opening and it's rare that we do, you know, you get inundated with applications and a lot of them start with, you know, I want to build bikes. It's always been my dream, blah, blah, blah. I, I tend to not gravitate towards those folks because, you know, at the end of the day, and especially if you talk to some of the older um, you know, builders have been in the game for a long time. The one-man shops, like I say, you know, I mentioned Richard and others. You know, it's hard work. It's not It's not about, you know, living the dream and some, you know, some glorified starving artist, you know, whatever. It's it's hard work, and it, it takes real effort and skill to make a quality bicycle and to be serious about it because it is a transportation device at the end of the day. Doesn't um, I mean you can't have fun and have a positive work environment along the way, but the, the person who you know, has this fantasized notion of what making bikes is and, and wants to be, you know, wants to join IF and, you know, have us train them and then go off and hang their own shingle out or whatever. And I'm just generally not interested in that. I'm looking for somebody who, you know, likes the notion of making, a, you know, a high quality product in America with their hands, you know, and and that's really kind of the starting point. If If it's bicycles, that's kind of secondary, right? And... You know, in the case of Polar Tech, we make fabric, you know, Timberland, we, you know, shoes and, and apparel. So you have to, you have to, it's a noble profession. You know, you have to be excited about making something that at the end of the day, you can step back and look at it and say, you know, I, I helped create that. And that's really cool. Um, but, uh, you know, all the, I don't know if that makes any sense, but all the other, you know, fantasy notion around the the sort of bike world that that's, just doesn't play out well typically. Because it's hard work, you know.
0: Yeah, people have to be motivated by the right things. And it sounds like sometimes, you know, what might seem like the obvious thing, like I really want to build custom bikes is maybe not the best thing. Because once, you know, like I've seen it done, and I know how hard some people work uh, at building the frames. And, you know, yeah, it's not glamorous. It's you're in there welding, cutting, sometimes in a garage that's hot. And, (laughs) you know, no AC.
1: Yeah well we have we've you know we fixed that like i said when we built our place out you know it's it's got great light and it's got air conditioning and it's got locker rooms and showers it's a beautiful place to work you know so we kind of made it a really nice place to work and and like i said the 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 first again whether it's you know fabric or or bikes the you know do you take pride do you view making something as a noble profession and that's and you know are you you know, you can't be the lone wolf, you know, you're part of a team, you're part of a process, you know, in the case of IF, you know, we have, you know, separation of labor, you know, we start with, you know, the fab end of the shop where people have to cut and lighter tubes, and then we weld, and then we paint and finish, and, you know, so on, all the things that go into to make a bicycle frame, and, um, you know, you have to be able to work, you know, collaboratively, and, uh you know, it's really hard because every bike is unique and so, you know, it's hard to establish a, a good rhythm and flow like you can in a in a more homogenous production environment. And so, you know, you want somebody that's got good interpersonal skills and um, you know, is just like I say, just happy to be associated with making something that you can be proud of at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. So one of the things when we were talking a few weeks back at the Politech event it was one of the key differences is like when the manager in a small company, like when you're on duty at IF, might be just as likely to be taking the trash out as the next guy in the office. Whereas with Polar Tech, obviously, you know, there's a whole system of staff and probably contractors to do all the different tasks, you know, tr- taking out the trash sure. is just one example. When you're at the smaller thing, when you're at IF, like what are some of the, the management challenges of a small company that are unique to a small company that you deal with?
1: Yeah, well, like I said earlier, and, you know, your take out the trash example, you know, that it's just this lack of leverage, right? You don't have this big infrastructure around you, whether it's body count or systems or whatever, you know. And so, you know, you have to, you know, it may be a cliche, but you've got to wear multiple hats. You know, literally, you know, you're the janitor one minute and the next minute you're making a decision on, you know, the, the merchandising of the model line or, you know, whether or not to, you know, market and advertise in a given you know, venue or, or publication or whatever. So, you know, you it's you just have to be super flexible and you have to have a low ego. You know, it's it's a, like I said, it's a really humbling experience. You, there's no room for that's not my job, you know. And, you know, in a small company, you know, everything's your job. Everything matters. Um, and if you see something, you know, you bend over and you pick it up. You know, if you see something on the floor, if you see, you know, something that needs to be cleaned, you clean it you know, and, uh, you know, you lead by example, it's easier in a small enterprise because if people see you doing it as the quote owner, you know, ideally they would take a little bit more pride and, you know, know, step up and and do things. And, you know, again, you know, that's what's made good fit versus others who haven't been successful at if, is when people come in and and have that spirit of, you know, Hey, this is going to be generally speaking my job, but I know that because, you know, this is a highly custom product that, you know, I might have to lean in and help somebody else out, you know, and move from, quote, one department to another. Right. I mean, you've seen the shop. You can walk from one end to the other in, you know, or a few minutes. It's not there's no room for divisions and, you know, all the other nonsense. And I I struggle with that even in big companies because people want to just sort of get in their silo and and their narrowly defined scope of things and not really step out of it. Um,
0: yeah, I was going to st- start to transition to uh, PolarTech. So, you know, with IF, you said you've got ten employees there. PolarTech, you're just under six hundred globally. So, how does the management experience at something small like IF translate to PolarTech? Like, how has the how has your experience with IF informed your management style at PolarTech?
1: You know, it's actually it's actually been super helpful. Um... Because you know Polar Tech's an interesting uh it's a big small company, and what I mean by that is it's big in that the brand is you know has is, is got you know a long and storied history and you know I would venture to 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 say that you know just about anybody around the world that is active um you know in any kind of outdoor athletic pursuits, they have something in their closet that features polartech fabric you know it's that pervasive um And, you know, it is a very global brand. You know, we have customers, you know, around the world in, uh, you know, every market, every region of the world. Um, But at the end of the day, we're an ingredient brand. We're making something that goes into something else. We make fabric. And so, you know, you've got your big global brands like North Face and Patagonia, and uh, and then you've got, you know, brands you've never heard of unless you live in, you know, New Zealand or, you know... uh, you know, a specific country, you know, every country in Western Europe still has their indigenous brands, you know, whether it's uh, Mie in France or uh, Ternua in in Spain or Narona up in the Scandinavian region, et cetera, and they're, you know, they're all customers. So, um, you know, as a percentage of a typical garment at retail, you know, the fabric represents, you know, typically single digits of the cost of that item and um so we're not huge in terms of our revenue profile we are we are a big fabric brand um but we're we're very big in terms of our reach and the complexity you know um we have you know folks you know managing and selling our product you know all around the world i came in this morning and you know my um you know global managing director of sales and marketing he's he lives in marseille france and he's here today because we have um we have a French journalist coming in tomorrow, and we have uh, a customer from Japan coming in to visit us tomorrow. So, it's it's good. So, again, that big small thing. You know, how do you keep how do you keep consistency? You know, as people are spread out. Um, again, it's a lot of you know bigger challenge I have. You know, versus if is if I can get everybody together fairly quickly or I can walk around the shop and talk to everybody in a short period of time. I can't do that here because we're spread out around the world in different time zones. And so communication becomes more difficult and we have to make a more formal and structured effort against it. So every quarter we have a rally um, and that's actually next Monday. So, you know, myself, I'll I'll kick it off with a, you know, state of the union, if you will, how how are we doing? Um, and then we'll have, you know, two or three others speak and and we simulcast that globally um you know i think it's recorded so people can listen to it later um we try to do it early in the morning you know u.s our headquarters time here on the east coast so that it's not too late in you know asia or you know even in europe when you have six seven hour time difference um
0: so what what are some of the differences in your management style and then management structure when you go from you know ten to a hundred to six hundred or more employees
1: well you you know again in a larger organization, you have more layers, and you know you want to be careful that you you don't have too many layers, but you definitely need you know some span breakers, if you will, um, because you know you you'll run out of bandwidth if you have too many people reporting at a given level um, and so you know it's 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 just there's more formal structure like I said because you need to cascade things down and up through the organization you need to have the you know the actual structural mechanisms to make that happen and so you know my direct reports are either they're functional leaders or or geographic leaders or whatever and so when we get together and have a staff meeting you know the expectation is that they in turn would share that information with their respective staffs and so on and as you cascade information down the organization and then you also get it you know flowing the other way Um, like I said, you know, we've got a relatively flat structure at IF, you know, it's a, it's a small company, you know, you've got my wife and I as the owners and then you've got, you know, Sean who leads the fab end of the shop and Chris who leads the paint end of the shop and then, you know, folks who, uh, do respective tasks. And so, you know, it's not hard to communicate up or down, you know, we're very accessible, um, you know, in a bigger organization, you got to you got to have the structure and you got to have the vehicles to make that happen.
0: How do you know when it's time to add a layer? You know, like there's a, a certain number of people reporting, and then I would say, you know, all right, wait, we need to funnel this through one. But what what's what are some guidelines you think work for knowing when and how to add layers of management?
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything formulaic to that, but, um, you know, when you, when you see a bottleneck in information flow, either up or down, then you, you really, then you understand or realize that there's somehow there's a constraint there. Um, you know, or if somebody is struggling, you know, hopefully, um, you know, people at a certain level in the organization, you create an environment where they're, they're self-aware and self-confident enough and, and where they'll raise their hand and say, Hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here. I need to, I need to restructure things. Um, I, I have to, I have to pause for a minute though, and say that, you know, I, I just think in general, big business, you know, is, is oftentimes too quick to play the structural card. And, you know, I go back to, you know, decades ago, you know, there's a, a gentleman named Peter Drucker, who's you know, kind of a, a very highly regarded academic and, in, in, you know, in the world of business and business strategy. And one of his famous sayings is structure follows strategy. And so if you think about any enterprise, there's many, many ways you could, you could organize. You could organize around product types, you could organize around geography, you could organize around functions, et cetera. And, you know, right or wrong, whatever org chart you put together, it's two-dimensional on a piece of paper, but any business problem is three-dimensional at least. And sometimes you know many dimensions and so if you choose to organize around product that's fine but at some point you're going to have issues that are geographic based or functional based and so everybody has to you know regardless of what the two-dimensional structure is everybody has to realize that you need to work across you know that you need that at least that third axis sometimes a fourth you know that you have to work across and I've been in situations where you know, I've had category responsibility, and and then the geography becomes a constraint because people get territorial by geography. Even though you're responsible for all, um, you know, all of a certain type of category. So at Timberland, for example, I was you know I had commercial responsibility for the outdoor business. Well, that's great, but what happens when outdoor products are sold in non-outdoor distribution? Right, <laughs> whose responsibility is that? Well, it's everybody's responsibility and so you just have to work it out instead of arguing over who gets credit for the sales of hiking boots in a department store because the department store is the casual guy's distribution, not the outdoor guy's distribution. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's always those there's always those things that come up and so, you know, it's really important that, you know, everybody in a big organization, regardless of their title, regardless of the structure, you know, the predominant structure, that they understand that you're here to serve the customer and you know, do the right thing for whether you know everybody answers to somebody, whether it's an individual proprietorship, privately owned company, publicly traded, whatever we all have investors that you're that you're trying to generate a return for, and you do that by serving a customer well and so you know when I was the outdoor guy at timberland i didn't I didn't get too hung up about i well, I need to control the sales of of my outdoor products in non outdoor distribution. It was like, look, I just want to make sure that." you know if there are people who have a need if there are consumers who have a need and they want to buy an outdoor product in a non-outdoor distribution that I was working with my colleagues who are responsible for that outdoor non-outdoor distribution to make sure that my product was assorted properly so that we could we could fulfill that need in the most efficient way and get the sale for Timberland um
0: it sounds like one of the classic yeah. challenges of having a commission sales force is that you know like people don't necessarily want to help somebody else because it means it's probably dipping into their own revenue. So is that a case where you would need maybe one more layer above? So now you have like outdoor general, and then underneath them you have like outdoor category and general retail category for outdoor
1: or something. Yeah, so, you know, in the case of something like that, you'd you'd obviously, you know, we had our product people um in the outdoor category, and I'll use Timberland as an example. They were very uh aware of you know where the opportunity to sell outdoor product was and what was nuanced about those different different distribution channels and the customers that operate in those dis- different distribution channels. So in the in the pure outdoor distribution, let's take uh, you know, a sport specialty uh store you know um that is you know typically in an access uh a gateway community to you know a recreation area or whatever you know we all know and love you know whatever your local outdoor store is um the best way to go to market and serve those types of accounts was with an independent sales force because they're not big chains that have buyers and, and corporate headquarters that you can visit and, and so on like an rei or a dick sporting goods or whatever and it, it it's it's a lot of time and energy to, to visit, you know, all these individual accounts that are, you know, in a given territory. And so when you have an outdoor uh, rep agency that carries a portfolio of brands, you, you know, you obviously want to pick your, your independent reps carefully, but it's in your best interest to have, you know, uh, those folks that have a, a portfolio of brands that they're bringing to you know, their accounts and their territory. And, and again, they're they're commissioned and, you know, if they don't sell, they don't eat. And so, but, you, but there's scale efficiency by having your brand go along with other brands in their bag, so to speak. Um, I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm just like in my head, I'm trying to think like when it's almost like the example I used earlier where like, so when you were having maybe the, let's just say, somebody was selling Timberland stuff to Walmart and then somebody else was selling to REI and how do you get them to work together when it makes sense? And it's almost like you could just have one person above them or you could have one person just hiring the individual sales reps for all those plus mom and pop shops. It's kind of like, I guess you have to play it on a case by case to see what makes sense if you need a layer in there or not.
1: Yeah. And in, in the case of, you know, big, what we, you know, what, but generally is called in the industry national accounts, you know, like a, you know, a, 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 a nameplate, like a Dick Sporting Goods or whatever that has, you know, doors in virtually every major uh, community across the country. You know, you, you oftentimes have a dedicated selling team um, that reports up to a management structure that is more focused on managing national accounts. They have different requirements, different demands, et cetera. And then, you know, when you have, you know, more distributed, you know, independent rep force or, you know, even even your own in-house sales agents that are covering a given territory and covering a wide variety of, of different types of doors, you know, the sales management skill set required, you know, on top of that is different. Yeah, But they're all, you know, at the end of the day, they're all selling, right? And trying to service an account and, and make sure that the assortment in that account is proper and that the account has everything that they need to actually get the product to sell through once you sell it in. And, um, you know, cause selling doesn't stop with, you know, the order, right. You know, it's, it's super important to, you know, support your, your, you know, in, in our case, you know, and it, when it's a small company, like if, you know, we do whatever we can to, you know, be of service to our dealers, if they're, you know, if they're having, customer appreciation events or whatever they're trying to do to generate business. You know, we try to be as supportive as we can. And, you know, at a big national accounts level, if, you know, Dix is running a promotion or whatever, you know, you want to, you want to be there for polar tech. It's, you know, we have, we do a lot of joint marketing because we're not, we're the ingredient and it's the, the, the apparel brand that is in those distribution points. So we'll, we'll go in and we'll run clinics. In support of a given brand so that the sales associates, whether it's an independent dealer or, you know, big chain dealer or whatever, that they understand the technology. They're able to help their customers make a choice between, you know, different types of Polar Tech technologies or, you know, Polar Tech versus something else.
0: Right. Um, yeah, I like the bigger picture analogy you used earlier. It's kind of, or, or example, it's... Sounds like it's kind of like identifying bottlenecks, you know, if, if you feel like things are falling through the cracks or stuff's not happening because, you know, one person's overworked and it's time to add another person. And I guess when it becomes overwhelming for the person above them, then maybe that's when you need a layer to help funnel the
1: important yeah, stuff I-
0: through to the top.
1: I wish I wish I could offer you some, you know, formula, yeah. you know some mathematical formula, but you know, I've been I've been at this for a long time and it, you know, it just you know, unfortunately the answer is it depends and sometimes you know, you you know it when you see it and like I said what you really hope is that you've created an environment where the people that uh that you're working with if if they become, you know, overtaxed that they feel comfortable enough to say, "Hey, you know, it might be time to rethink this because, you know, I'm I'm struggling here to keep up, keep my head above water, and so on.
0: Yeah, when you, you know. when you find people, like let's use IF as an example, you mentioned you've got kind of like a a beginning stage person who cuts the tubes and miters, and then in the later stage that does the welding and stuff, and then each of those two have a couple of people under them. Um, and then you're above, you and your wife are above both of them. So do you ever find that the, the people at the, the bottom of the hierarchy are coming straight to you guys and is that an issue when people kind of jump past their management their immediate management and go above them and if so like how do you deal with that
1: well in a, in, a, in a company like if it's not it's not an issue right it's such a it's such a small group of people and you know everybody knows everybody and it's not like you know it's the you know that's the classic sort of chain of command thing and you know in a military context it's an absolute no no you know to kind of violate the chain of command um, you know, it's more of an issue in a bigger business when, when someone is not respecting the reporting relationships and trying to do an end around for whatever reason. Um, and that's where, you know, you can, you can have some problems in terms of, you know, communication breaking down. I, you know, look, as, as the CEO of Polar Tech, you know, I, I, I try really hard to be accessible and approachable. On the other hand, if, if someone comes to me and starts articulating a problem, and they're, you know, a layer or two below me. The first question I typically ask them when they pause is, you know, have you brought this to whomever it is that they report to? Um, because it's it's not okay to go, you know, start pointing out issues or raising issues if you haven't at least tried to find a way to work through the, the organization structure because it's there for a reason, you know, to be efficient. And, and so you have to respect it. Um, know, it's interesting in a you know, in a contemporary context with all the you know, all the stuff that's coming out about you know, sexual harassment, whatever, you know, the flip side of that is you have to also create short circuits, you know, in a big company in particular to the reporting relationships so that if you know, if there is things that are, you know, happening, you know, down in the bowels of the organization and they're being smothered for whatever reason, you know, you gotta give people the ability to blow the whistle or, you know, have an ombudsman type scenario. And like in the case of, you know, a larger company like Tech, that's typically the purview of your HR department. You know, you would hope that, you know, if there's a problem and, you know, people are uncomfortable raising that issue with their immediate, you know, superior that, you know, they'd have a vehicle to do that, especially things that, you know, are, um, you know, cause type issues.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, So... No, I think that answers the question well. So I'm curious, is there a management challenge that keeps you up at night? And if so, how do you deal with it?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's. I, let me try to, you know, I, I do believe that your job as a leader is to be a positive source of energy. And, and what I mean by that is I don't, I don't look for loyalty in people. Loyalty, and this may be semantics to some folks, but it's just the way I I process it through my own filters. You know, there's a blind element to loyalty that I, I don't respond well to. I expect my dog to be loyal to me because, you know, I, I house him, I feed him, I, you know, don't beat him, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and he's not... Thinking too much about it, right? When it comes to people, what I what I really you know like, and this is something that came from my McKinsey background, is the word followership. You know, I believe if you if you have a vision of where you're trying to take an enterprise and you share that vision in a positive way, in in doing so, you're creating opportunity for other people um to you know participate and, and and work hard towards achieving that vision. Then that's that's you know, so being a positive source of energy. At the same time, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I've uh, up in New England. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a professional problem solver, right? So sometimes you got to be careful not to just be a hammer looking for nails, you know? <laughs> and, and you know, what keeps me up at night is, you know, I just am fundamentally hardwired towards finding things that need to be fixed that could be better, right? You can put a positive spin on that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you you got to be honest and direct, you know? And so um, you know, the situation that I inherited, you know, five years ago when I took the leadership role at PolarTech. is, you know, PolarTech is definitely a turnaround situation. You know, it's a great and storied brand that has great product and great people, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's struggled with some, you know, bad choices, you know, from its leadership in the past and, and, uh, you know, writing that and turning it around, you just got to be honest about it. You know, I'm also a bit of a history geek, um, and, You know it's again maybe a cliche but you know if you don't understand your history and internalize it, you're doomed to repeat it and so whether that's a small company big company you know life in general you know i think it's important to understand where you've come from and be honest about what worked what didn't work in order to set an exciting path and get people motivated towards moving down that path towards the future so i just wrestle constantly with you know how honest and direct can I be at a given moment in time and have people take that in the right spirit versus, you know, the notion of needing to be a positive source of energy. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not by nature, a, you know, a cheerleader, you know, I just, I, you know, kind of, I work really hard and always have. And, you know, my idea of retirement is to work really hard just on different things, you know, and, uh, Mm -hmm you know so you know I, all you can do is just lead by example
0: yeah well that made me think of a couple of things uh one is that you know i've i've i like when you say you're you're a hammer looking for a nail and, and you know looking for problems to solve and i think like i have a similar mindset i just i, I kind of call it a different thing you know for me it's okay we fix something or something's going good and that's great but what's next how can we make that better you know like i'm, I'm it's not necessarily a problem I'm looking for to solve, but I'm looking for a way to refine and improve something, even if it's already working. And it drives, uh, probably my wife crazy. And I know it drives some other people crazy because I, I, I need to congratulate more and I need to give kudos more to, you know, my team at bike room or elsewhere, as opposed to just saying, all right, good job. What are you going to do next? What's what's next?
1: Sure. You know, again, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's a fine line, right? Between, you know, the the older you get, I guess that you know, the definition of wisdom is you you at least understand your own limitations, you know? Um, And, you know, I don't want to be a hammer that's looking for nails. I want to be a complete toolkit, you know? It doesn't mean I am fundamentally wired to solve problems. That's, you know, that's how I've gotten anything that I've ever achieved. It's because, you know, I've taken initiative and, you know, I've looked for opportunity. And when I, Found opportunity. I did my best to make the most of it, and you know that. You know sometimes you know you need a screwdriver. Sometimes you need a wrench. Sometimes you need a hammer. You know. You know. Being able to uh, understand what the nature of the opportunity slash problem is. That said, I you know I I just think as a society and and you mentioned you know some of the generational issues and this is where I'll sound like a grumpy old man. (laughs) you know, there's all this liberal bullshit about everybody gets a medal for participating. I don't buy into that, you know, at all. Right. You know, you know, showing up is, you know, that's just the beginning, right. You know, that's the bare minimum, you know, showing up and quote participating, you know, it's like, what did you do? You know? And, you know, every day I ask myself, what did I do to make whatever it is that I put my energy against that day better? And, you know i don't want I don't want to sit around and wait for my board uh to have to you know motivate me i want to be self motivated and I feel like I've always been that way and in the case of you know moving ahead or moving forward, I've always done the job that I wanted before it was given to me yeah you know and and I try to inspire that in my kids I try to inspire it in you know the people that I work with and But, you know, just, just this notion of, you know, I, I show up and therefore I'm entitled.
0: Yeah. Well, if you only ever wait around for somebody to tell you what to do, you're only ever going to get what they're willing to give you. You Yeah. You got to get out there and take it if you want it.
1: Well, and eventually somebody's going to draw a beat on you and say, wait a minute, what, what value are you really adding? You know, are you, you're, you know, you're showing up and you're involved, but did you actually make a difference? What did you really do? And, you know, it, uh, you know, it goes back to that old, you know, the ham and egg breakfast parable, right? It's the difference between being involved and being committed, right? You know, in the ham and egg breakfast, you know, the chicken was involved, right? They gave up an egg, but, you know, and in the case of the pig, they were committed. They gave up a slab of ass, you know? And and so it's like, what are you putting on the table? You know, are you just laying an egg and, you know, moving on to lay an egg tomorrow? Or are you putting, you know, in this case, skin or real meat in the game? (laughs) And, and that's, you know, it goes all the way back to that, you know, the earlier part of the conversation about, you know, the difference between an employee and an owner. Um, I would like to think that you could instill, you know, ownership values in employees, you know, not always the case, you know, it's hard, right. But I, you know, even in a, in a larger company like Polar Tech, I hope that people come here and they take pride and they take quote ownership for what they do, what they contribute to the success of the company.
0: Yeah. I think it'd be worth this from talking to some other people is being, I don't know if careful is even the right word, but like you want people to take ownership in what they're doing and, and feel pride in it. But at the same time, you gotta be careful that some people aren't feeling entitled because say maybe they've been there for a long time or you know, whatever reason they have because I think ownership is good. Whereas feeling entitled, uh is is entirely the wrong thing it's sort of
1: unmotivating i don't know if you run into that all, all all the time you know i mean there's there there's there's no room anywhere you know for entitlement i mean it's just it's a it's a self-absorbed it's a really negative thing you know it uh you know no one you know you're you're entitled to what you earn in in the literal translation of what you earn and you know, you, you have to make a difference in what you do. Um, Yeah.
0: So we're coming up an hour and I want to be respectful of your time, but I still have a few questions. And and one of the things you and I talked about real briefly a couple weeks ago too, I don't know if you remember, was what you can and can't get away with as a leader or a manager at small companies versus big companies and, and not, Anything bad, but you know, like at IF you guys are probably a pretty close knit team and you're you're very jovial with them, you know, much as I am with my team at Bike Rover. But some of the jokes we make, some of the things we say would not fly in a larger, more corporate environment like Polar Tech, and maybe you could speak to that a little bit about like how you how you need to act as a manager based on the type of crew and the size of crew you have underneath you.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the hardest things that I've had to learn is you know I'm a I'm a fairly casual person, um, and you, you know as you as you grow in responsibility and and your title grows, you know you have to be cognizant at some point, you know and it's it's not a it's not a good thing, but you just have to be aware of that. People really listen to what you say, right? And. You know particularly in a big organization where you have layers and you know routines and you know people are trying to get ahead and you know you can't you can't ever be callous about what you say because someone may in fact try to inter- you know act on that <laughs> and you know that's that's the that's the hardest thing to you know you want to be you want to be natural you want to be who you are, but in a big enterprise you do have to be a lot more sensitive um, you know, I've been an officer in a publicly traded company. You know, and obviously there's implications, you know, legal and and regulatory about what you can say and when you can say it, where you can say it. Um, you know, so that's you know, when when it's just you and and like you say, uh, you know, a, a small close-knit group of folks that you know behave more like family. And still, I would I would I would like to hope. And and again, I think it's particularly. Relevant in the current context of you know all these uh, you know abuses coming to light and claims being made and so on, that I would hope that everyone in the enterprise gives their colleagues the benefit of the doubt. Um, now, if you give the enterprise and your colleagues the benefit of the doubt and they prove you wrong, then that's that's the opportunity for you to you know make a claim, so to speak. But I do I do worry a little bit that we become so not political corrects, not the right word, you know, as a society, but there, there are people who are looking to play. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Almost like, you know, too, uh, opportunistic and not everyone, but it, you know, yeah, it's kind of like so, one bad apple ruins the bunch in, in people's right. minds. Right. And it's,
1: and, and it's not about, look, I, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to share off colored jokes, that sort of thing. I mean, obviously there's just basic professional standards and decorum that you have to adhere to. Um, but it's more about, you know, uh, people getting so overly sensitive to certain things and they're, you know, they're looking for, you know, a trigger word or a cause or, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I worry a bit that we've become, you know, that we're just not giving each other the benefit of the doubt anymore. Like I said, it's one thing, you know, if if you do give the enterprise or the individual the benefit of the doubt and they prove you wrong, then, then you have a claim. But it's it's, you know, you know it's a, it's a little, it's a challenging environment right now. I think everybody's kind of walking around on eggshells, you know, on, on a lot of different topics. Yeah. Um, so switching to a
0: possibly more positive subject <laughs> sure. So among founders. <laughs> yeah. I think delegation of duties seems to be one of the hardest things to figure out. So for entrepreneurs running a small startup, what are two or three pieces of advice you'd give them on that topic?
1: Yeah, I've I've always I've always been a big believer in a rising tide lifts a leaky boat, you know. And you know, one of the challenges that entrepreneurs have because you know they tend to be the quote founder, you know, they had the the sort of ownership of the idea or whatever, you know, the business model. Um, you gotta just let people do their thing. You know, I I'm a huge fan of everything I've ever achieved. It's because of the team that I've surrounded myself with, and you know i've i've just had great success i've had some failures but i've had more success than failures just giving people opportunity you know um we all at some point somebody took a chance on us right you know i can think back across my career and to, you know very specific examples where you know my career took a different turn because someone recognized something in me and gave me an opportunity and um i think you know, rather than view it as, you know, delegation or task management, I just view it as opportunity creation. And that's the, it's actually fun. You know, it's like you're giving people an opportunity, you're giving them a gift. And, uh, you know, I've tapped people, I've pulled them, you know, out of the bowels of the organization and given them the opportunity to demonstrate that they can do more. And, you know, you just get, you get incredible things out of people. And, you know, I try not to be you know, just don't judge, you know, don't put too much stock into, you know, what their background is or isn't, you know, I just, uh, you know, bet on athletes, you know, when somebody shows initiative, just take advantage of that, you know, let them run. And I think entrepreneurs struggle with that, you know, generally speaking. And that's why, you know, typically the transition from, you know, a startup to a professionally run business, you, you know, usually there's some sort of ugly, uh um, some ugly transition between the founder and, you know, professional management.
0: Yeah. Well, I think maybe looking at that a different way. I think one of the things I've struggled with and perhaps done wrong on some occasion is like I'm so ready to delegate something that I just kind of push it off on somebody because they say they think they could do it instead of really trying to find the right person to do that and or even waiting for somebody to step up and say, "Hey, you know, I can do that for you." And you know it's that's a kind of a reverse version of that struggle is that you know you want to delegate, but you just maybe you're not putting it off on the right person or taking your time to find the right person
1: sure I mean you know I guess I've also seen you know and recently had this one where you know you 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 create an opportunity for someone and they have not yet mastered the details, and so you know they're. Uh, it, it's it's really important that you know people do have you know a solid foundation before they step up, and you know typically that involves you know you can't you can't you know i been one of my favorite saying you can't rise above the details until you master the details you know because and I think you know particularly in bigger organizations where you've got you know this climb the ladder mentality and everybody's trying to get to the next node you know you really have to you really have to have mastered you know certain things before you can move up because just for no other reason than to be able to, you know, call bullshit. Um and so yeah, you don't you can't just, you know, you can't just blindly give people responsibility when they're not ready for it. You know, you got to create an environment where um you have some confidence that they have the skill set and if they don't, you're able to step in and help them out or at least, you know, nurture them for a period of time until they can they, until they can run on their own.
0: Yeah. Good advice. Uh, anything else you'd add on the general topic of management?
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know, you know, I, I'm just. It always reminds me, you know, there was uh, Lee Iacocca back when he was managing Chrysler. You know, and Chrysler was at the time winning tons of awards for, you know, design, you know, car of the year, this sort of thing. But at the same time, they were at the bottom of the you know quality rankings, and so you know he was. At a car show where they had just won another award for design, and the reporter thought they'd, you know, they'd play gotcha with him, and they said, you know, Mr. Iacocca, you know, um, how do you reconcile winning all these design awards yet your quality's at the bottom of of the rankings? And, you know, he, without skipping a beat, he said to the reporter, he said, this would be a great job if we didn't have to make the damn things, <laughs> you know. And, you know, I always kind of flip that around, you know, particularly when I'm uh, involved in, you know, people issues. And, uh, and to say, you know, this would be a great job if I didn't have to manage people, you know. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, everybody loves the product side and the customer side and so on. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're, uh, we're all unique individuals and it takes all types. And you just have to, you know, I think that's the key to managing is recognizing that, you know, you know, other people aren't you and we all have our own filters that are a function of where we were when, you know. And it does take all types and, you know, um, not all leadership styles are the same. And, you know, I think if you surround yourself, you know, diversity tends to get, you know, narrow cast as, you know, just about color and race and gender. And, you know, it's diversity is about, you know, people who can compensate for your shortcomings. You know, I, uh, you know, and surrounding yourself with people who have complementary skill sets, that's, that's key like I say rising tide lifts leaky boats you know so um you know people management you know I like I said earlier you know I underestimated the people component when when I invested in if you know I you know looked at it you know like a big business person you know great brand great product I didn't didn't I grossly underestimated the people challenges even though I'd had you know a reasonable uh a reasonable level of insight into what some of those challenges were versus you know versus that that reality TV show that we had done previously. So managing, managing people is tough.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Are there any uh, books or other resources that you'd recommend for people that want to kind of take their management skills to the next level or just figure out how to get started?
1: You know, honestly, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the self-help business book genre. Um, And for the simple reason that it tends to be, you know seen through the lens of an individual right which you know there's there's some value in that um I'm a huge history guy like I said earlier and I just think you know leadership takes many forms you know and and just understanding you know conflict and and success and I like biographies and that sort of thing I mean I just take bits and pieces from from all over the place and but I just I, I, I do find that You know, I think it's interesting, you know, as somebody who's formally educated in business, you know, at the undergrad, graduate level, that there's no history course on business. And, you know, the business of history is fascinating. You know, how enterprises evolved, how structures evolved, um, you know, how things have changed, you know, where there's been disruptive technologies or, you know, distribution channels like, you know, Amazon and the Internet and so on. Um, You know, there's, there's... history is informative
0: yeah any good autobiographies or biographies that you you particularly love
1: um you know one of the one of the one of ones that i read recently and i was just talking to somebody about yesterday is keith richards you know um Hmm. from the rolling stones biography life no but i mean you know it's 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 fascinating you know here's an individual who um you know has has had a very interesting life and and, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was, you know, he was he was a heroin addict, you know, for, for a big chunk of his life. And, you know, he's somewhat unapologetic, but he's very introspective. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to be a lot to be gained from 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 that. So
0: cool. Check it out. Well, thank you very right. much for your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot.
1: My my pleasure. All right. Cheers. Tyler. See ya.
0: Gary has a lot of great quotes in this episode, and I've included quite a few of them in the show notes at TheBuildCycle.com. Some of my favorites include, it's all about treating people with respect and accountability. When you're the leader, your job is to create an inspiring vision. And diversity tends to get narrowcast as just being about gender and race. Diversity is about people who can compensate for your shortcomings. Surround yourself with complementary skill sets. We're all unique individuals. Towards the end, we talk more about leadership than management. Ideally, if you're inspiring people to do good, meaningful work, then you're being a leader. Show them why what they're doing matters, and it's probably less likely your team will need constant management and oversight. My challenge for you is this. Talk to your employees about what's important to them. What opportunities do they see for your company? Where do they want to contribute? Take notes. Then step back for a day or two and create a vision that everyone can buy into. Give people roles and responsibilities that challenge them to achieve goals that are both personally fulfilling and benefit the company's bottom line. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've got some amazing guests lined up and some killer ones already on the books worth checking out. Here's hoping you manage some real growth and prosperity in the new year, Until next time, keep building.